Thank you for joining us for the lessons from First Naz podcast. Abraham believed it. He just believed it. When, when we open up in, in the book of Genesis and read the story, it's just Abraham believed the promise. When he had no, no reason to believe it. And the reason I keep coming back to that, I think, is, is because it's challenged me to wonder, what am I believing God for that other people would look at and say, no way, no way. What, what are the big, audacious promises of God that we are trusting God for right now? Maybe, I, I think it could be all sorts of things. Maybe it's the salvation of somebody that is far away from the Lord and you think, no way. Maybe, maybe it's that God has put in your heart just like the seed of something new and different that God is calling you to, and, and it's, just, it's just a seed in your heart at this moment, but you've heard it, and, and you kind of think, no way, but at the same time, it's, maybe it's the promise that God is, is asking you to believe. As we look at the message of the book of Romans, the promise that, that we are drawn to over and over again is the promise that God could transform us, that God could do something in our hearts and lives that makes the rest of the world look at us and say, wow, that's different. That's new. That's exciting. That's, that's more than I ever could have imagined could have happened in the life of that person. And so today I'm in Romans chapter 7, and and I'm just going to walk through the chapter, looking at a chapter that is often uh, abused and confused, and it's used in all sorts of ways. And just so you know, I have an agenda when I come to Romans chapter 7. I'm just, I always have an agenda. Today I am just going to go ahead and admit it right from the beginning. I have an agenda this morning as I take you to Romans chapter 7, because I'll be honest with you, I want you well, I get, this is, you should know this by just submitting yourself to this week after week. Uh, I want you to read Romans 7 the way that I read it. I think I read it correctly, personally, and so I think you should read it the way I read it. It's, uh, it's an important passage for us as believers, and as we get into it, you might find yourself disagreeing with me, and honestly, you'd be in good company if you disagree with me this morning about the way that I read Romans chapter 7, but I think that I read it from our Nazarene perspective. I'm, I'm trying to read it uh, in a way that is true to who we are as the church in the Nazarene, because our Nazarene perspective says that God's power is greater than the power of sin in us. God's power to, to transform us and change us is greater than the power of sin in us, that when a person walks with Jesus, that person can walk in freedom from the need to sin. And that is a big, audacious promise to believe. And so we, we believe in the radical transformation that can take place in the life of a believer. And we believe that Romans 7 is an illustration of what life used to look like before we live in, in that promise. And so... Uh, we, have, we have been believing this for over a century as a denomination, and it has made people look at us as Nazarenes and say, boy, those Nazarenes are weird. And, and we haven't minded that. We, we've kind of accepted it. We, we've taken as our title the Church of the Nazarene because we want to identify with Jesus when people looked at Jesus and said, what good can come out of Nazareth? 
we said we want to be people who are, who are identified with, with Jesus when, when everybody looked at him and said, what good could come from his hometown? We are the church of the Nazarene. We're not really concerned about being weird. We, I mean, you called me as your pastor, and uh, we, aren't, we aren't particularly concerned about it. Uh, it's not just for the sake of weirdness, though. We, we really believe that God could do something that, that the rest of the world looks at and thinks, really? Really? That person? And so, we've been through the book of Romans up to, up to this point. The Apostle Paul started with his introduction on sin, and he talked about how sin is, is taking the love that God has placed in our hearts and twisting it. We give love a bad name. We've turned our desire to worship and love God into idolatry, and we worship all kinds of things that aren't God. We, we worship, like we have these little devices that we carry around with us so we can worship things 24-7 as we scroll through worshiping and uh, and then we've turned our, our desire to love other people into strange pursuits of, for, of pleasure for ourselves. We, we have tried to control other people in the name of loving them. We have decided that our love for other people means that those people need to be exactly the way we think they ought to be. We've, we've turned it into uh, self-love that doesn't show respect for anyone somehow. And, and then we show that we can't love well because in our most important and most intimate relationships are the relationships that we, we mess up the most in love. We, we are the most selfish toward those we are closest to. We, we, are, um, we, we lose our temper with those we claim to be most precious to us most often. And not only have we twisted love and given love a bad name, but we've become addicted to our strange twists on love. And, and we think we can't possibly go on living without these strange twists that we've put on love. And Paul said there is good news. And so from, from midway through chapter 2 in the book of Romans, he begins unfolding what is the good news that, that he is telling us about. He tells us the good news is that while our sin caused us to have a great debt, with God, Jesus paid the debt. Jesus paid the debt, and he, he offered us a way to be forgiven by God, and we can walk in a whole and right relationship with God. And uh, we, uh, we, can, we can experience that freedom, that, that forgiveness, simply by believing that Jesus has offered it. And so in, in the future in Romans, in part of the book of Romans that we're not going to get to, in Romans chapter 10, there is this very succinct statement of what, what Jesus says uh, or what we believe about believing the promise of Jesus. In, in Romans 10 verse 9, we say, or Paul says, if you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so we, we discover this very simple equation for, for forgiveness and in, in a new walk and new life with, with Jesus. We, we have this very succinct statement uh, and very succinct equation of faith, faith equaling forgiveness, faith equaling newness of life, faith just simply believing equaling a, a new life with Jesus, salvation. And that very simple equation of faith equaling salvation leads to a very difficult and complex question. And the very difficult and complex question that we, we come to when we, we believe this very succinct and simple, simple equation is, really? Really? We have this, this simple statement that all we have to do is believe 
and, and we'll receive this incredible gift from Jesus. And so the question that we ask ourselves over and over again is, no, no, not really. It can't be that easy. It can't be that simple. That it's just faith is all we need in order to be in right relationship with God. And so we begin to say, no, 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 no. There's got to be some sort of standard, right? There's got to be some sort of rule. What rules do I need to follow? We, we want to know what are, what are the things I need to be doing every day in order to, to actually live a saved life, a life with Jesus. And we want to add all sorts of things to faith and say, yeah, faith is good, but really I need to probably obey a law. Isn't there a set of rules that I could obey? I'd feel more comfortable if there would be some rules that I could just follow. And I'm pretty sure then if I, if I could follow rules, I would feel better about my salvation. And, uh, and so there, there must be something more, we think. But remember that Jesus, Jesus came into an environment that was all about rules, right? Jesus came into an environment that loved rules. They loved to follow, follow rules. In fact, the people of God, when Jesus began his ministry, they had been very carefully preserving and teaching and expounding upon and following the law of God that had been given to, to his people thousands of years before, a couple of, a couple of, of millennia before. And they, they knew that if they followed the law correctly, they, they, would, they would be in right, right relationship with, with God. And so Jesus came into, into a world that knew the rules, and Jesus was a disruptor in chief when it comes to the rules. Jesus, Jesus came and he made all sorts of, of claims about the rules and about the law of God. He, he was an agitator. And so he said things like, on the Sermon on the Mount, he made it sound like he loved the rules. He said, uh, I, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. I'm, I'm not getting rid of any of the rules here, folks. We're just going to fulfill them, is what Jesus says. And then, and then just right on the heels of that, he says, not one dot of an I or cross of a T will pass away from the law. Jesus is, is claiming in the Sermon on the Mount to be a preserver of the rules. But then just right on the heels of that, he says things like the Sabbath, which is a rule to follow the Sabbath, right? That's a, a very clear rule we can follow. Jesus says the Sabbath, the Sabbath isn't made for people. People are... People aren't made for the Sabbath. <laughs> the Sabbath is made for people, uh, is what, what Jesus says. He told the Pharisees who tried to get everybody to follow the rules that they lay heavy burdens on people. And, that, and that's not, not doing anything. <laughs> it's, not, it's not accomplishing anything. And then Jesus came upon the rich young ruler in Matthew chapter 19. And the rich young ruler wanted to know what he must do in order to be saved. And Jesus he spouts the law. He says, you must not murder, you must not commit adultery, you must not steal, you must not testify falsely, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. If you're, if you're counting that six commands, five of which are from the Ten Commandments directly, and one is, is Jesus' summary of the law. Jesus sums up the law and the prophets. Later in the book of Matthew, he sums up the law and the prophets, which is shorthand for basically all of the Old Testament. The majority of the Old Testament is the Law and the Prophets. Jesus says, if you want to know what it says, 
it says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's what the law says. And so Jesus says, nothing's going to go away from the law. Not even one dot from one eye is going to go away from the law. But you can also just sum it up in two pretty simple phrases. And so Jesus, Jesus gives us this new perspective on the law. And the early church was, was left to try to understand if Jesus died and rose from the dead and, and made all of these different claims about the law, but it, none of it's going to go away, but you can just sum it up in two easy sentences. How do we live with, with the law? And so Paul turns in, in the book of Romans, and, and he, he's trying to give an overview of what it is to walk a Christian walk. And in, in the letter to Rome, he writes over and over again about the relationship between people and the law, and, and sin and the law. And Paul mentions the law on a bunch of occasions in the first six chapters of the book of Romans. In, in chapter 2, he talks about how the law was the place where the, the Jews had this special relationship with God. But even though they had this special relationship with God because they had the law, they weren't able to, to abide by the law. And so they had all this pride that they had the law, but they didn't actually fulfill the law. They didn't actually live according to the law. And then Paul says also in, in chapter 2 in the book of Romans, the people reveal that the law is written on their hearts because, uh, because their conscience and thoughts accuse them or tell them that they are doing right. The, the law is written on our hearts even before we know the law. In, in chapter 4, when Paul is talking about Abraham, Abraham was counted as righteousness before the law was given. Paul, Paul really nails that point. This all happened before the law was given, that, that uh, Abraham was counted righteous because his faith. His faith. And, and he's, he's making the case that the written rules of the law are much less important than the faith that we place in our Savior. And that's quite a change for a person who at one time considered himself completely blameless and righteous because of his ability to follow the law. In chapter 5, Paul says that the law was given so that people could see how sinful they are and see uh, that they are headed to death. In chapter 6, Paul explores the limits of grace and says, well, maybe there's so much grace we don't need to follow any rules. And, and he, he says during, during that discussion, you no longer live under the law. The law doesn't apply to you any longer. And, and he mentions that we were slaves to sin, but now we are slaves to righteousness. And so with all of this talk about the law and the rules and, and what we're supposed to do in relationship to the, to the rules, we get to Romans chapter 7. And we find ourselves struggling with the question of the place of the law. But more specifically, we, we find ourselves struggling with the relationship that believers have with with sin, and, and how we are supposed to grow in grace. Like, if, if we're making any growth in grace, how, how should our lives look? And, and we come with, with all of this history of Jesus talking about rules and Paul talking about rules to, to this passage that, that can be kind of confusing. And so I'm going to walk through it kind of paragraph by paragraph here, and try 
again, I've got my own axe to grind. I'm, I'm, I'm admitting here. I'm going to try to make you believe the way I believe. <laughs> uh, but hopefully I can, can help, uh, help unfold a promise that's, that's pretty amazing that, that I believe God has given us. So in, in Romans chapter 7, we begin, I'm going to begin by reading the first six verses. It says this, this is a New Living Translation. Now, dear brothers and sisters, you who are familiar with the law, don't you know that the law applies only while a person is living? For example, when a woman marries, the law binds her to her husband as long as he is alive. But if he dies, the laws of marriage no longer apply to her. So while her husband is alive, she would be committing adultery if she married another man. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law and does not commit adultery when she remarries. So, my dear brothers and sisters, this is the point. You died to the power of the law when you died with Christ. And now you are united with the one who was raised from the dead. As a result, we can produce a harvest of good deeds for God. When we were controlled by our own old nature, sinful desires were at work within us, and the law aroused these evil desires that produced a harvest of sinful deeds, resulting in death. But now we have been released from the law, for we died to it and are no longer captive to its power. Now we can serve God, not the old way of obeying the letter of the law, but in the new way of living in the Spirit. I didn't want to preach all of Romans 7 this morning. I, I didn't want to include this section, but it's foundational. It's essential. In order to understand what Paul is doing through the rest of the, the chapter, we have to get clear on what Paul says here, and we cannot forget it. We can't forget what happens in verses 1 through 6 just because we're reading later in the chapter. We have to remember what Paul has said here, because there are some key, important, essential phrases here that Paul is declaring that if we forget it, then we're going to say something completely different with the rest of, of Romans chapter 7. And it's going to be completely incoherent, our reading, if we forget what Paul says in these first two paragraphs of Romans 7. So listen carefully to what Paul has said here in Romans uh, 7, 1 through, 1 through 6, but especially from verse 4 on. Paul says in verse 4, and now you are united with the one who was raised from the dead. As a result, we can produce a harvest of good deeds for God. This is the current reality for the believers in Rome. You have been raised with the one who was raised from the dead. You Roman believers, Christians of all centuries and all locations, you have been raised to life with the one who was resurrected. In verse 5 then he says, when we were controlled by our old nature, sinful desires were at work within us. Just the grammarians out there will love this. This is past tense, right? Look at that. That is completely past tense. Paul is not talking about the current experience of believers. He's saying 
You were, we were, he is including himself, we were controlled. Now we can produce a harvest of righteousness, of good deeds leading to righteousness, right? At the, at the end of that section then, in, in verse 6, he says, but now we have been released from the law, for we died to it and are no longer captive to its power. Now, now, right? What tense is that? That's present tense. That is now. That is currently happening. This is, this is what is the, the current reality. You can't get any more current than now, can you? Like, this is now. Now we can serve God, not in the old way of obeying the letter of the law, but in the new way of living in the Spirit. Don't forget what Paul has said in these first six verses of the chapter here as we continue on. Because it's going to be tempting. You are going to be tempted. Don't let yourself be tempted. Don't let yourself be tempted, Rosalie. I see that. <laughs> Don't let yourself be tempted. You're going to be tempted to disbelieve what you've just read by, based on what Paul says later on. Keep believing it. So we're going to go on. We're going to read verses 7 through 13 now. Well then, and I, am I suggesting that the law of God is sinful? Of course not. In fact, it was the law that showed me my sin. I would never have known that coveting was wrong if the law had not said, you must not covet. But sin used this command to arouse all kind of covetous desires within me. If, uh, if, if there is, were no law, sin would not have that power. At one time, I lived without understanding the law. But when I learned the command not to covet, for instance, the power of sin came to life, and I died. So I discovered that the law's commands, which were supposed to bring life, brought spiritual death instead. Sin took advantage of those commands and deceived me. It used the commands to kill me. But still, the law itself is holy, and its commands are holy and right and good. But how can that be? Did the law, which is good, cause my death? Of course not. Sin used what was good to bring about my condemnation to death. By the way, that has been my definition of sin throughout this, this series, right? This is, sin gives love a bad name. I just uh, pat myself on the back. So we can see how terrible sin really is. It uses God's good commands for its own evil purposes. So Paul illustrates what the law does in this section by talking about coveting, right? He says, before the law came along, I didn't know what, like coveting wasn't a deal, right? And then I heard that there was a rule that I was supposed to follow that said, you, can't, you shall not covet. And I was instantly drawn like a moth to the flame of coveting. That's what, that's what rules do for us. That's what the law does for us. That's what, what sin produces in us. This is so much our human nature, right? What is our cultural mantra about rules? Rules are meant to be broken. Everybody knows that. 
Rules are meant to be broken. So we hear a rule and we instantly think, well, I gotta break that rule. I could tell you this morning, there's a new rule in our church, you may not dust for the next week in your house. If I told you, you may not dust in your house for the next week, you may not have dusted for a decade. Not since you brought home that new Blu-ray player 10 years ago have you dusted in your house. But if I told you, you may not dust this week in your house, you are instantly thinking, oh, remember that cool feather duster we have? That would work great on some of that dust in the living room, right? That is what our hearts do with rules. We instantly, we, we are drawn to, to finding boundaries, to finding the place where, where we can get as close to breaking a rule as possible, right? Or to just simply breaking the rules that we think are stupid, right? We, we love to break rules that we think are dumb. That's civil disobedience. That's a good thing, right? We, we ought to. We, sh- we owe it to those bad rules to break them. This is the way our human nature works. And so Paul says, this is what sin is. Midway through verse 13, sin used what was good to bring about my condemnation to death. And I'm, I'm again, I'm drawn to the tense of, of these verses because all of this, seven, verses 7 through 13, it's all written in past tense. Paul is talking all about his prior experience. Paul is talking about the prior experience of the Roman believers, with the implication being now there is a different experience. Present tense looks different than what life used to look like. This is to say that we may get to the point in the Christian life where we hear that God wants us to act in a certain way. We may. We may get to a point where we hear that God wants us to act in a certain way. God wants us to go that way. Our human nature is going to be drawn like a moth to the flame to go away from the way that God wants us to go. But Paul is saying there is a chance, there is a chance that you could hear that God wants you to act in a certain way and you would start to say, you know, that sounds pretty good. I think I might want to go that way that God is calling me. Romans 7 is, is now going to make a change. <laughs> it's now going to make a change, and this is why you have to remember what Paul has been saying and about the timing of what Paul has been saying, because Romans 7 is now going to change to present tense. Paul is now going to say some things that sound as if he is talking about his current reality. What he's going to say about his current reality, though, cannot be true if what he has said up to this point is also true. He, he has to be using the present tense to talk about things in the past. We do this all the time, right? Did I tell you what happened this week? I'm, I'm going into the store, and they had lemons on sale for three for a dollar. And so I say to the produce manager, well, when life gives you lemons, make lemonade, right? Right? We do this kind of thing all the time. We, we use present tense to illustrate what, it, what has happened in the past. We, we tell stories that happened in the past in present tense. We, we do this especially when talking about emotion. I'm so torn up. I, you know, we are, you're telling the, a story about how, how you get the phone call, and, and you know, I, I heard what he said, and instantly I'm just thinking of all the ways that I want to react. 
right? We, when, we, when we talk about what's going on inside of us, often we talk about it as if it's present tense, even if it happened years before. I believe that's what Paul is doing here in these verses. So listen, again, if you disagree completely, you're probably in good company, but I think you ought to, you ought to agree with me. So here we go. In verses 14 through 17, this next paragraph, Paul says, So the trouble is not with the law, for it is spiritual and good. The trouble is with me, for I am all too human, a slave to sin. See, again, Paul can't say he's a slave to sin now after he has said so many times he is no longer a slave to sin. He's talking about what it was like in the past. I'm all too human, a slave to sin. I don't really understand myself, for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. But if I know that what uh, if I know that what I am doing is wrong, this shows that I agree that the law is good. So I am not the one doing the wrong, uh, not the one doing wrong. It is sin living in me that does it. I, I, Paul is speaking present tense. Yes, I, I agree. Paul is speaking in the present tense. He can't say that he is still a slave to sin after he said, on multiple occasions in this chapter, I am no longer a slave to sin. He's not talking about his current expectation for the life of a believer. He, he is saying, maybe there was a time. Maybe there was a time. Maybe there was that time when I just had begin, begun to put faith in Jesus. There was that time I had just begun to put faith in Jesus. I hadn't grown, I hadn't matured, and I was drawn like a moth to sin. This is not what Paul is currently experiencing. We go on to verses 18 through 20. He says, And I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. But if I do what I don't want to do, I am not really the one doing wrong. It is sin living in me that does it. So many people read this passage in, in isolation. They'll, they'll take these few verses out of, of the rest of the con, uh, context of Romans 7, and they'll say, well, look here, the Apostle Paul couldn't even live. He, he was still dominated by his sinful nature. Well, no, he wasn't. <laughs> he just said he wasn't earlier in the chapter. It, it, but if we take this out of its context, if we just read these verses, we say how arrogant it would be of any person to say that they wouldn't instantly be drawn like a moth to the flame of sin. We say there's no chance. If the Apostle Paul himself couldn't live in victory over, this, over sin, how could anybody live in victory over sin? Paul says it, it is the sinful nature and sin living in him that makes him unable to do this thing. But already, Paul has said, that stuff's gone. That stuff died with Jesus. And I've been raised to new life. I don't have to live this way any longer. So wrapping up the chapter, we read the last paragraph, verses 21 through 25. I have discovered this principle of life, that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. I love God's law with all my heart, but there is another power within me that is at war with my mind. 
This power makes me slave to the sin that is still within me. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Thank God. The answer is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. So, you see how it is. In my mind, I really want to obey God's law, but because of my sinful nature, I am a slave to sin. One more time. He's already said he's not a slave to sin. That is not his current reality. He's talking about his, his life prior. He can't have said, he, it, one thing can't be true in all of this. Either all of the talk that he's given us about dying to sin and living new life, and then what he's going to say in Romans 8 about no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because they're no longer dominated by the sinful desires living within them. Like, all of that can be false, or he could be talking about a different period in his life when he, when he speaks in the pre- present tense here at the end of, of Romans chapter 7. I, I really think that, that Paul is, is talking about earlier in his life. He's talking about a time when it was true. He, he couldn't do right to save himself. But he, he has experienced newness of life. He has been, he's been laid to rest with Christ and raised again to newness of life. He, he says in the middle of this, like, who will set me free, right? At the end of verse 24 and into verse 25, who will set me free from this, uh, from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Thank God. The answer is in Jesus Christ our Lord. This begs the question then, like, if the answer is Jesus Christ our Lord, if, if we're going to say, well, not even Paul accomplished it, not even Paul was able to, to live a holy life, and what we're saying is that not even Jesus Christ our Lord, who is the answer, is powerful enough to deal with sin in us. And so essentially, you're saying, if, if, you, if you have to say, if your theology demands that you say that you will never experience victory over sin, then you have to say that Jesus is weaker than sin. If your theology makes you have to say that, I think you ought to revisit some of the basis of your theology. I think Jesus, you know, he's the Sunday school answer, right? The answer is Jesus. But Jesus is more powerful. And so Paul intends his audience to believe that they could have victory over sin. And when we, when we read that, in the 21st century, I think it becomes a hard pill to swallow. For some reason, for us in, in our culture, in our day and age, this is a hard pill for us to swallow. It's an idea that could easily be abused. It's an idea that could easily be abused to say, well, I have experienced such a level of, of closeness with God that I haven't sinned since, since 2008. How could I be wrong? I, I haven't sinned since... Uh, since before my first child was born, right? It could easily be, it could be easily misconstrued to, to say things like that. Uh, but it, it confounds us, really, this kind of promise, this kind of idea that we could live in victory. It, it confounds us because we are often tempted. We are often tempted, and, and sometimes 
Even those who have walked a long time with Jesus, they cave to temptation. And it frustrates us because we intend to live in love. And love tends to be hardest with those who are most important to us. And in our most intimate relationships and most important relationships are the ones where we lack patience and kindness. And it tortures us because sin seems to know just exactly the places where, where we want to obey, but we know we aren't. And sin just keeps throwing it back in our faces when we fail in that one spot where God is really trying to work on us. And Paul's point throughout Romans, though, is that we, we aren't called to clean ourselves up. We are never called. Paul doesn't say, get yourself forgiven. Paul doesn't say, get yourself raised again to new lists of life. Paul, Paul doesn't say, get yourself to, to live in victory over sin. Paul calls us to believe that God could do these things in our lives. He says, thank God, the answer is Jesus Christ our Lord. The answer is not me. The answer is not the strength of your will or the strength of your character. The answer is Jesus Christ. He has offered us everything we need to have victory over him, over sin. This can be a hard promise to believe. Faith like this does not come easy. And I think that's why I keep getting drawn back to Abraham. To, to believe that you and I could, could live in victory over sin, it's like being a man who is beyond the years when he should have a child in his house with a wife who has long since given up hope that she could ever have children of her own. And hearing that you're going to be the father of many nations and believing it. God doesn't call you to do the work. He calls you to believe the promise. God knows how weak you are. God knows you can't do it. God calls you to believe the promise. And so I'd, I'd ask you today to set aside your doubts based on your own weakness. Set aside your doubts based on your own weakness and to trust the strength of God. To stop focusing on your own inability and to focus on God's incredible ability to transform us. To believe that God's grace is stronger than your inability. To dare to put yourself in God's hands and say, God, do with me as you will. God, do with me what you would like to do. To believe that he can transform your life and to see what he does. We can't do it on our own. We, we are dependent on, uh, on the grace of Jesus to work in us. The only way this could possibly be is, is if a gracious God would offer us as a gift the ability to walk according to his will. The only way this could possibly, possibly be is, is if God would say, I'm going to do a work in your heart that you could never do. And then, and then there's a chance. There's a chance that we could, we could experience the power of God in our lives to, to hear that God wants us to go in the direction that God is calling us to do. 
rather than being drawn immediately away from that to say, hey, that sounds like a pretty good idea. I think I'd like to do what God would like me to do. Will you stand and pray with me one more time? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have been allowed to participate in this holy mystery. We thank you, God, for the grace that we have received for, for this day. We pray that you would carry us on through the rest of this week, living in your grace, receiving from your hand the promises of our Savior, the promise of victory over sin, the promise that we could hear the will of God and respond. We love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you as you go. Hear the word of the Lord and go that way. You are dismissed.